From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Gaborone, Botswana. Yep, you heard that right. On this week's edition, why investors are bullish on sustainable infrastructure, what to expect from COP23, is it time to retune our mindsets, and how a diamond company helped build a nation. It's a jewel of a show this week on 350. It's November 10th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. It's episode 100. Wow. I'm Joel McCower, and joining me this week across the Atlantic and the equator is Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Happy 100. Well, happy 100 to you too, Joel, from not-so-exotic New Jersey, where the leaves are falling fast. Yeah. Well, it's been a fun, fun thing. I'm doing this 100 with you and earlier with Lauren Hepler. I'm really enjoying it. We'll spend some maybe some more time next week in episode 101 talking about the first 100 shows. I don't know what. We'll figure that out. But um, yeah, how's everything going in the U.S. and uh, New Jersey? Well, I'm not sure if you heard yet, Joel, but we have a new governor here in New Jersey. It is Phil Murphy, the Democrat. And um, I'm happy about that for several different reasons. Um, not the least of which I, I have very little fondness for our previous or our current governor. But um, he has promised to bring back New Jersey's participation in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, something that, um, that uh, Governor Christie exited when he came in. Um, I also, there was also a great ballot measure on uh, yesterday that the New Jersey voters overwhelmingly approved, and that was to make sure that any settlements, any money that, uh, that the state received related to uh, environmental issues, so like, for example, a big spill of a, a petrochemical or at a, at, a, at a gas, natural gas facility, to make sure that the money could, would, would go directly to um, environmental causes. Believe it or not, there was, um, because of New Jersey's Balanced Budget Act, um, it, it, people have been able to use money for, from these things for other purposes. And uh, uh, Governor Christie did indeed try to use quite a bit of money from an Exxon settlement uh, for other measures. And it, when that happened, someone got the idea to put it on the ballot and it did pass. So I'm, I'm comforted by the fact that if, if money comes in for environmental damages, it goes towards uh, correcting those damages. So that's the state of affairs here in New Jersey, Joel. What are you doing in Botswana, of all places? Well, I came down here this week to participate in a series of events that De Beers, the diamond company, has put together. Uh, on Tuesday, I uh, was the plenary moderator. I moderated a series of panels uh, for Sustainability Day. It's part of a week-long diamond conference that the De Beers does every year. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other components there. And I hosted a number of panels, and uh, we'll actually post some YouTube videos of those for people who really want to watch all of it. It's, it's kind of interesting. But I learned a lot about the diamond industry, not just the environmental piece, but uh, the human rights piece, the labor piece, uh, the social piece, and most importantly, how 
De Beers, the company that uh, is based here in Botswana and is the largest diamond company uh, in the world, um, the relationship it has with Botswana is really interesting, and we'll get a little bit later, I'll have a conversation with David Prager, who's the Executive Vice President, Corporate Affairs for De Beers. Talk a little bit about that. De Beers, that is not a name that I would normally associate with sustainability or corporate responsibility. Should I be worried about you? You know, this is not your mother or father's De Beers. This is a very different company than the one that most people associate with. It goes back to the uh, 70s and 80s and around Blood Diamonds and the Leo DiCaprio movie and Conflict Diamonds and, and all of those things. Um, the company's changed a lot. First of all, in about 2000 or so, it stopped sourcing diamonds from conflict areas. In fact, it began sourcing diamonds only from mines that De Beers itself owns, which is in four countries, South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, and Canada, up near the Arctic Circle. Um, there's uh, some diamonds, apparently. Um, and so, uh, first of all, the, com the company is is not sourcing that way. But they've also gone through this, this transformation, I think, from a corporate responsibility perspective, where like a lot of companies that had been under fire from critics, uh, stakeholders, activists, but also just a company that's part of the 21st century and a company that's been here in this country now for 50 years. Uh, the company itself is over 100 years old. They've started to really, uh, more than started, they've taken on some very responsible actions. I have to say I was kind of impressed and I sort of like what's going on here. And for example, this week, there was a sustainability conference on Tuesday on Wednesday, there was an entrepreneurship conference, all-day event, uh, hundreds of young Botswana entrepreneurs, uh, and there, it was the uh, debuting a partnership with Stanford uh, to uh, uh, help grow entrepreneurship here in this country. And on Wednesday, uh, excuse me, on Thursday, <laughs> what day is it? I've lost track. On Thursday was uh, a Women's Day where they brought together a group of uh, more panels and speakers uh, to talk about female empowerment in, uh, in Botswana and in Southern Africa in general. And it's not just a uh, showpiece. Uh, this is, each one of these involves a number of partnerships, uh, in this case the UN Women for the, the women's uh, event um, and the Stanford one for the entrepreneurship and a lot going on with different parts of the value chain on the sustainability side. So I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a diamond buyer. I've never bought one in my life. Um, and I don't, I mean, who knows what, if I ever will. But I was kind of impressed with the company. And I've watched a lot of companies go through uh, this journey over time that companies had been criticized from Nike to Walmart to McDonald's and how they've transformed themselves. And I think I might want to add De Beers to that list. So that's kind of the story of what's been going on here. And we'll do a few segments uh, throughout this uh, episode from Botswana, but it's been a really, really interesting week. Let's go into the week in review. While Joel was off chasing stories in Botswana, the rest of the Green Biz editorial team has been busy keeping the site updated with news and thought-provoking essays to get your mind racing. First up, the latest submission from ongoing GreenBiz contributor John Elkington, entitled, Is It Time to Retune Our Mindsets? In it, Elkington recounts his participation 
in a recent debate at the Cambridge Union in England. It's a big, um, big-time debating society. And the arguments centered on the following motion. This house would rather cool down the planet than warm up the economy. The implication of the central thesis, of course, is that it's impossible to do both, and that proved to be a trap for the climate skeptics in the room. The side that argued for growth with little regard for the planet lost the debate big time. The point of Elkington's story is that asking people to choose economic growth and the climate is a false alternative. It's a mindset that is increasingly outdated. Now more than ever, it's important that advocates of corporate action understand that link. Another piece that captured my attention and imagination is a submission from Lucy Kessler. She's a master's student in environmental management at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Search for the headline, Battery Storage Holds Promise in the Commercial Market. The article offers some sound advice for organizations that are considering how to invest in on-site battery storage technology. It explores potential electricity cost reductions and the potential applications for so-called behind-the-meter installations that pair solar panels and some sort of on-site batteries that aren't necessarily tied to the main central grid. Among the takeaways that struck me most viscerally, first, it turns out that almost 25% of commercial accounts could actually benefit in some way from the cost savings, so that was more than I anticipated. Also, location matters a big deal. You see a lot of reporting and stories about the opportunities in progressive states like California and New York, but the report at the center of this article surfaces some other up-and-coming markets in places like Georgia, Kentucky, West Virginia, Alabama, Michigan, Iowa, New Mexico, and Texas. The final piece I'll mention this week is the dispatch I filed after attending the Goldman Sachs Sustainable Finance Innovation Forum in early November. You can find it under the headline, Investors Bullish on Potential for Sustainable Infrastructure. This was a day jam-packed with great sessions, including venture capital investment strategies, the mainstreaming of environmental, social, and governance issues within the institutional investment world, and the influence of impact investing. All of those were explored in great detail um, during the sessions of the day. One of the common threads across the panel discussions was the need for new collaboration between public and private investors, especially when it comes to financing sustainable blueprints for new bridges, roads, water systems, and other infrastructure. The United States was actually described more than once as one of the biggest emerging markets for projects of this nature. There was also a lot of chatter about green bond issues, which are on a pace to reach $135 billion this year. China's big. Um, there's several corporates, though, in the United States that are participating. Uh, it has been rather muted. Apple and Starbucks still stand out as the innovators here, but interest is still very active, according to the conference attendees. A big concern remains how to report on the progress of projects enabled by green bonds, the reputational risk for not delivering could be substantial. GreenBiz associate editor Anya Hallmeiser is following the trail of these investments and what's inspiring them. As part of that coverage, she spoke this week with Christina Alnez, senior advisor of climate finance at Cicero, a climate research institute 
and provider of second opinions about green bonds. Here are some excerpts from that interview. A couple of really interesting trends. For one, we see that there's constantly new markets opening up. So we've worked more, most recently with, uh, with new companies in Malaysia, and we're getting interest from a lot of developing world markets, which is really exciting because there's a lot of need and also potential for green bonds and climate finance in sort of funnel financing for um, SDG uh, projects and climate adaptation and mitigation in the developing world. So I think that's um, one core trend that I see, new markets becoming interested in green bonds. And then on the the corporate side as well for sort of for the, the more established markets in North America and in Europe, we see that there's just a lot of innovation in what you, what they're using green bonds for and also that there's just um, more and more traditional corporates coming to the market with green bonds. The issuers that come to us, they are often looking for, it's a, it's a mix. They're looking for a way to, of course, they're looking to finance their green project. So that's the number one. Um, but then why do it, the question is why do it through a green bond instead of a, a regular non-green bond? And what they do see for sure is a diversification of the investor base. So the green bond market is so small that um, I think that every green bond that is issued still get some attention. And for these green sustainable investors, um, it's a small enough universe that they will, uh, or at least I've heard some of them say that they'll look at almost every green bond that is issued. So for, especially for smaller issuers, they can get a broader investor base. Um, and then they'll also gain probably some uh, reputational benefits from issuing a green bond. That's definitely a way to signal to stakeholders that they are uh, that they're serious about climate change and that they're serious about their green projects. It adds some weight, I would say, to a CSR policy when you put, because with the green bond, you are earmarking funds towards sustainable or green projects. So it certainly is very, gives you credibility as a company. The 23rd session of the Conference of the Parties to the UN Convention on Climate Change, or COP23 for short, officially kicked off this week in Bonn, Germany. Negotiators there will focus on developing the rules for implementing the 2015 Paris Agreement, including how to report and review countries' climate efforts. They're discussing a new five-year cycle to assess progress and update contributions. And they're also studying the use of market-based approaches to move forward. So I guess a big goal is seeking clarity with the United States federal government conspicuous by its absence. But just because the Trump administration is downplaying the event doesn't mean there won't be plenty of representation by the United States. Among other things, you can expect an update on the America's Pledge Movement the commitment by cities and businesses to pick up the slack for the U.S. federal government. Both Michael Bloomberg, the U.N. Secretary General's Special Envoy for Cities and Climate Change, and Jerry Brown, the governor of California, will be on hand with fresh details on what's happening. Plenty of big companies are also sending their own representatives, aware of the urgency to demonstrate support through both words and action. Among those jumping on a plane to Germany, 
are Valerie Smith, Director and Global Head of Corporate Sustainability for financial services giant City. I spoke this week with Valerie about her expectations for COP23, as well as what she hopes to accomplish there. Here are excerpts from our interview. The agenda um, itself is a mixture of different panel speaking engagements and events that are being hosted by um, a lot of different players. But I think City's overarching agenda is, um, like many companies' agenda, is really to be there to be a voice of business, to be a supporting voice, an enabling voice as a financial institution for um, for the climate negotiations and for climate solutions. So we are going over to talk about our support of the Paris Agreement, to talk about climate as a business and market opportunity um, and a real like motivator for business. And we'll also be talking about um, a number of other topics around climate change and disclosure. We will be participating in, um, in some of the events at the U.S. Climate Action Pavilion. We have participated in a couple of different initiatives. Most notably, our CEO, Michael Corbett, signed the Wall Street Journal letter and advertisement in support of the Paris Agreement earlier this year. So that was really our main messaging around um, our support of the Paris Agreement and our continued commitment to those initiatives and goals. We were already quite vocal and had already set ambitious goals in the climate space. So um, we had announced a three years ago now um, a sustainable progress strategy that had as its top priority climate change. We had launched our $100 billion environmental finance goal, which is our commitment to our clients, to sustainable growth, to financing climate solutions. And I think what you've seen this year is from City and from others, you you see a continued commitment to the goals that we've set. I mean, those goals are really our North Star in this space. I think there's also an acknowledgement that, and this is one of the reasons why we're going to COP23 in Bonn, there's an acknowledgement that the corporate voice is even more important. It's important to send the signal to other countries, to markets, to our clients, um, that this is still an important business issue for companies like Citi. It's still, you know, in partnership with our clients, an important business opportunity. And so I think you may have, you may see companies like Citi slightly amplifying their message over the course of this year on a pretty wide variety of topics, certainly climate being one of them. But the message is still the same, and the message has been consistent over the years, that climate change is an important business issue for us. We believe it's an important business opportunity, and we are really focused on financing sustainable growth in partnership with our clients. What City expects and hopes to achieve is that we will be talking about initiatives like our, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, our $100 billion environmental finance goal. We will also be talking about our work on climate disclosure related to the task force on climate-related financial disclosure recommendations. But I think more than that, we 
are we want to be a part of the chorus of business voices that um, are essentially saying we are still committed to this space, our goals in this area have not changed, and sending a really important signal that um, regardless of what sig- what different signals they might be getting from um, the United States, that the business community, in addition to um, many cities in the United States, are still very dedicated to climate solutions. And I think that that is an important message for all of the different actors at COP to hear, to hear from the business community and others in the United States. There are two primary goals that um, that negoti- the negotiators will be working to accomplish at COP23. Um, the first is that they'll be de- developing the rules that will govern the Paris Agreement. And the second, and I think this is um, really important, is that they're going to begin the process of increasing climate action ambitions by 2020. So when the Paris Agreement was forged, there was the understanding that um, the different nationally determined contributions that countries were putting forward could be ratcheted up over time. Um, obviously, these are you know country-by-country country decisions. So what they'll be working on in Bonn is beginning that process of encouraging increased ambitions. And I think that is the space to watch in terms of the, um, the broad negotiation level outcomes to watch for. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. So as I said earlier, it's been a really busy weekend. On Tuesday, I co-hosted the Sustainability Day at the Diamond Conference and had a bunch of really interesting conversations, one with Her Excellency, Mrs. Jacinta Behrens, who's the UN Development Program resident representative to Botswana. And I uh, had a, another one with uh, several people from uh, also from the UN and, and De Beers and uh, something called the Diamond Hub, which is an um, organization that uh, helps facilitate economic development through the diamond industry. And, and one really interesting plenary session where I had six uh, different speakers um, representing kind of the whole value chain of the diamond industry uh, from the uh, uh, actual mining to the midstream, as it's called, uh, who, that take the, the raw diamonds and turn them into finished products, all the way through to the, the Diamond Producers and Association, which does a lot of the marketing. So really from, from mine to market. And um, just re- got the whole spectrum of, of issues. I mean, MZ Fula Ngenge is the chairman of the, of the African Diamond Council, uh, who really represents the diamond miners, the, the Africans doing the, the hard work in the mines, um, had some really interesting uh, and, and kind of contentious views uh, relative to to the uh, head of uh, government and industry relations from De Beers Group. Uh, her name is uh, Fariel Zaruki. Just fascinating conversations. There was a really interesting conversation part of that, a little presentation by uh, Jean-Marc Lieberherr, who's the CEO of the Diamond Producers Association. They're looking 
at the next generation of mo- the millennial generation and how they're changing how they talk about diamonds. And because traditionally it's been this thing for primarily for engagements and weddings and and commitments, and um, it's been kind of you know upscale, elite, kind of staid, fancy uh, marketing. And now a lot of that's changing. And so I had a conversation with him about how the diamond industry is looking at the millennial generation. Here, here's that conversation. Jean-Marc, you talked a, a fascinating about the how you're trying to reposition diamonds from this sort of staid old world to uh, reposition it for millennials. What are you doing and what, are the, what do you know that they want? Well, the first thing about this new generation that we, uh, we learn by talking to many of them is that they're not into their parents' representations of society. They're not into rep- reproducing the social norms, r- standards, and, and rituals that uh, they feel are being uh, imposed on them. They set their own roles. They want to do things their own way, and they want to say things their own way. And authenticity in what they do, what they say, the way they express their love and their feeling is really central to their, their, their being. Uh, how, how do we make sure that diamonds are part of the language that they use to say I love you or to express their feelings towards someone else when for a decade it has been actually part of a social ritual uh, or a, uh, a, a, a standard of how you do things uh, when you get married and we got to uh, make them take ownership for the meaning of what a diamond really stands for and it's got to be relevant to them and that's, that's what we're doing. So one of the things you hear about uh, millennials all the time is that they're all about authenticity. Um, I mean, that seems to be, and particularly in the face of synthetic diamonds, authenticity would be, I would imagine, a big part of the message. Yeah, it sounds like a, a bit of a cliche, but I think what they mean by authenticity is they want to be true to themselves. Uh, and uh, they, um, the truth is a very important part of their, their, their culture. Um, so, yes, clearly, uh, you know, what's more genuine, authentic uh, than a billion-year-old or three-billion-year-old diamond? Um, and uh, clearly, it is a differentiator from synthetic diamonds that are produced in a, in a factory in a matter of weeks um, and, and really don't have any inherent emotional or monetary value. And I noticed that one of the ads you're doing sort of takes diamonds to outdoors, you know, active lifestyle. Uh, this is a young couple that's, uh, I don't know what kind of diamond or how it fits in, but it's obviously not necessarily the engagement or the 25th anniversary brooch. Uh, this, is a, this is a diamond as part of a, the way you're positioning it as part of a sort of a young lifestyle uh, style. Yeah. Well, clearly the diamond plays a role in the story. It's the symbol of what they've got going between the two of them, which is really important. It's not a medal of honor that the man has given to the woman. Uh, I think that's a really important aspect. The, the diamond celebrates what the couple has got go to, going between the two of them. It doesn't celebrate a forever commitment uh, from one to another of the two, the two of them. For that matter, they don't really want to hear about anything that's forever. They want to know that they're going to be growing together, that what they have is valuable, is going to make them progress, and then God knows where it takes them. If it's forever, great, but that's because the process was good. And diamonds can play a role in making that process good. Wow, diamonds aren't necessarily forever. That's that's new information. But how, do, how does all this relate to sustainability, the sustainable development goals, and, and everything else we've been talking about here at the Diamond Conference? 
Yeah, no, that's really, really important. Uh, I think uh, um, younger consumers make a statement when they buy something and they want to make sure that the product that they're buying or the brand that they're buying is aligned with their own personal values. Um, you know, we, we believe that diamonds do a lot of good, that they provide uh, education, uh, livelihood and, and health to about 10 million people worldwide. Not everything is perfect in the world of diamond, but the millennials that we talk to uh, about the, the goods that diamond do, what they actually contribute in societies like here in Botswana, or even India actually love the story and, and, and embrace it totally. So um, it is an important part of our proposition to them that actually they can buy a product that is um, not only all beautiful, authentic and rare, but, but also uh, um, does a lot of good in the world. And you're introducing some new ads in the U.S. Uh, during the month of November. Uh, what's your message there? Well, it's a very similar message. It's really the celebration of the authenticity of uh, um, the, the tenderness, the intimacy uh, between a couple that's, um, that's uh, find themselves, really. And uh, we, we're trying to really stay away from social representations of love to really talk about intimate intimacy, uh, uh, authenticity and, and, uh, and tenderness uh, uh, between a couple and, and the diamond as a symbol of, of, of that. All while paddling a canoe. Yeah, for example, no more, no more canoe in the new, in the new ads. Uh, and, you know, these new ads will be targeting more slightly older uh, millennials, more established relationships. Um, but they, they are tender, uh, they're charming, and, and they feel real because they are. So what's the thing you want people to take away about diamonds and sustainability? Well, the one thing I want, to, I want to, uh, people to, uh, to, to uh, keep in mind is that uh, diamonds are at the center of a huge ecosystem that involves about 10 million people, directly or indirectly, in some of the most disadvantaged regions of the world, including Southern Africa and, and India. Uh, and that uh, the progress that's been made over the past 15 years, I think, has no equal in any industry. And so the industry is no longer what it was 15 years ago. The uh, conflict diamonds, as depicted by the DiCaprio movie, are really a thing of the past. It doesn't mean it's the end of the journey. I think continuous improvement is is what we need to, to, to do. And we, we can never be satisfied with where we are, given the promise of purity and, and, and transparency of our product. But uh, I think consumers can be proud of the diamond they're buying. Jean-Marc Lieberherr, CEO of the Diamond Producers Association. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. One of the amazing people I met this week in Botswana is Peter Hung, who is a UX, that's user experience, innovation expert at Google, also has a previous life as a geneticist. Peter, you talked a little bit about generosity and how that relates to innovation and entrepreneurship and how that relates to Botswana. Um, Joel, thanks. Yeah. Um, and I love that you think I'm an expert. I feel like I'm just a beginner. Um, so, yes, I do work at Google, and I've been a creative director for ad agencies and design studios, as well as a scientist um, using genetics for things like marine biology. And it sounds scattered, and sounds like I can't hold down a job, but it's really about having different perspectives on how the world works and what makes us tick. 
and, um, and continuing into the work that I do now, leveraging things like neuroscience and behavioral economics. And where it comes to generosity is there's a whole neuroscience to compassion, empathy, uh, altruism, um, much that I've learned when partnering with uh, great groups like uh, greatergood.org, um, uh, the scientists at Berkeley um, who study this. And what it actually shows and teaches us is that generosity, one, is not this mystical thing. Um, in fact, it's more like a muscle. You can actually see it in the brain. You can measure the size of it. Uh, and that because it's a physical thing, in a way, it makes it more real. And in a way, it makes it something that we can take care of. And um, it was at Stanford. They hooked up all these Buddhist monks. Um, and they could actually detect and see the area in the brain where... Uh, this muscle, the insula, this region of compassion. And in, in Tibetan monks, it was massive, and the rest of us was small. And um, what that means is, as a physical structure, when we see things, that we, t as a society and as an individual, uh, we tend to say, oh, now I can deal with it. So if the mo and most of us, if it's small, how do we flex that, and how do we make that bigger? And it turns out the bigger your generosity, your compassion muscle is, the more empathetic you are, the better listener you are, um, the, it, it does a host of things for your own body. It lowers your cortisol and stress. It also uh, turns on antiviral expression. In a way, you're happier, you live longer, and you're a better communicator and a better human being. So, so talk a little bit about why, of all the things you could talk to a group of young entrepreneurs about, uh, specifically here in Botswana, why you wanted to talk, why you thought that was an important topic. So, in terms of innovation, um, I think innovation tends to work best when, even if you have different opinions, you can get people aligned and working together. And compassion uh, and empathy is one of the best ways that you can truly understand another person's perspective, because then you're not just designing for something and putting it out in the world and hoping that it succeeds. You're understanding your audience first, which is one of the basic principles of user experience, understand your audience. But it's more than saying, hey, I've done some market research, like, I think there's a gap here, let's fill it, versus like, what people are really feeling and what, are, what they're really needing actually needs to be addressed at an emotional and a psychological, perhaps a very deep-seated level. And that's a humanistic perspective that we could definitely use more of in technology. And in Botswana, you have such great intellect and great entrepreneurs who are at the stage where they could leapfrog, I think, the rest of the world because they can embrace the best of what we've already developed in terms of strategies and technologies. But now having, there's a high level of intellect as well as a high level of empathy and consideration that I've seen in the psyche of the culture here, which I think can truly can take advantage of true product innovation because they're being more conscientious and because they're being truer to what are the upstream humanistic factors that create better downstream product successes. So this isn't simply a matter of taking Silicon Valley and trying to embed it here in Southern Africa uh, and, and become what Silicon Valley has become? Or is that what's going on here? No. In fact, I'm really glad you asked that question because it's never again like the idea of the colonial power introducing here's what we've learned adopted in fact when i said the word leapfrog i was intentional um uh, when i gave a talk there's a culture here 
as early as the 1400s, even sooner, Africa was a cosmopolitan society. They were already trading with uh, the southeast coasts of Asia and Arabia and India and as far as China. And they were a cosmopolitan society of technology and innovation and ideas. And this is before European colonial powers affected the, the history and recent history here. Um, so the African continent is already a house for, uh, for innovation. And, and they don't have to follow the blueprint and the legacy of the blueprints that we have in the tech sector. In fact, they truly can take the best of what we have, use their own culture, use their own history, use their own psyche, and I would say use their own empathy. Uh, there's a stronger social culture here, whereas North America tends to have evolved from a distinct puritanical uh, mindset of our of the U.S. history through uh, the aspects of the colonies that developed there. Um, and here, the African society is tied to the land and awareness of the land, as well as the awareness of the city. Most people here in the city still come from, they have their connection in their villages, but they work here in the city. And so that's a holistic perspective, and that's going to give them an advantage. So I know that uh, your presentation was very well received, aside from the standing ovation you got. At the end of it, you, you uh, have been conver- had conversations for uh, at least the next tw- 12 hours, if not the, the next 24 hours, with people who wanted to pick your brain and just learn more. What did, what did you learn? I've been learning a lot. I've been learning, and what I saw immediately after the, the talk was the level of the questions were profound. I've given uh, similar versions of this talk or these workshops throughout Europe and the U.S., but I have never seen a, that level of intention, um, depth in the intellect, as well as the empathetic connection of their understanding each other. And it seemed like I wasn't, I was merely catalyst. They already knew almost everything I was saying. In fact, it was more, I think it was more surprised nodding, where they would like, oh yeah, Oh, yeah. And that's what happens when you're already in touch with yourself. And that's a mindful perspective. And this is a mindful society. Peter Hung, uh, UX uh, innovation guru, guru at <laughs> no, Google. Um, it was a re- great pleasure to meet you here. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. So finally, as I said at the beginning, the relationship between Botswana and De Beers Company has been kind of interesting. Uh, and they go, they date back to, uh, to the very beginning of the country, which uh, was formed in uh, 1966, uh, one year before diamonds were discovered here. So diamonds weren't discovered until a year after the British had given uh, Botswana its freedom, I guess. Had things happened in the opposite order, uh, it might, things might have gone differently. Uh, I'm sure the UK might have wanted to keep uh, hold on to this country, but Botswana was left on its own, and it was left with this amazing resource. And uh, part of what enabled that resource to help Botswana become the very stable and relatively well-educated, healthy country that it's become has been this unique partnership with De Beers. So I sat down with David Prager, the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs, to have him sort of talk me through what was going on here and sort of what was remarkable about this relationship. David, one of the things that's been really interesting to me in my, during my visit to Botswana is to understand the relationship between De Beers and Botswana. It's a rather unique relationship between a company and a country. Um, talk just a little bit about how it is, what it is, how it began. 
Thanks, Joel. It, you know, it is a unique partnership, and it's a really cool one, uh, one that we're really proud of. Uh, so Soretsi Kama, who is the first president of Botswana, who's recently been profiled in the big film, The United Kingdom, um, really had a remarkable uh, vision. And he understood the wealth uh, that was beneath uh, the feet of all Botswana. Uh, and so he decided that uh, diamond revenues would not be vested in the area or the tribe from which uh, they were found, but rather in the entire nation. And that really set the stage for Botswana to be able to build an economy around diamonds. And that's so to avoid the resource curse that so many other countries face with oil and, and other minerals. So where does De Beers come in? Yeah, well, that's right. And so, so you know, Botswana had really wise leadership. They set up uh, strong uh, institutions, democratic institutions, had strong rule of law, good governance, low levels of corruption. Uh, and um, they struck uh, a very, uh, I think, uh, wise deal with De Beers in which uh, they uh, agreed on joint ownership uh, of the mining company that would uh, mine the resource. And so in Botswana, we mine Botswana's diamonds through a joint venture, 50-50 joint venture called Debswana. Uh, and Debswana uh, has been going for almost 50 years now, uh, and it still today stands as a beacon for what public-private partnerships can be uh, for the world. And, and, in, uh, and in Botswana, while it's a 50-50 partnership, after taxes and royalties and dividends, uh, the Botswana government uh, will take 81% uh, of every dollar earned by uh, Debswana, and 19% goes to De Beers. And De Beers is uh, by far and away the largest company in Botswana. I, I think some of the just statistics uh, of what's happened in those 50 years since uh, the nation was founded as a result of the, the very wise investment of the wise structure, business structure that the government took with you, is, is, it's, it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. So government government took the revenues uh, uh, earned by uh, the mining of diamonds and they reinvested it in healthcare, in infrastructure, and in education. So when diamond mining first started, or when diamonds were first discovered in 1967, there were six kilometers of paved roads in Botswana, and it was one of the poorest countries on earth. Today, there are more than 6,000 uh, tarmac roads in Botswana. Uh, there was something like uh, f- uh, 48, uh, one doctor for every 48,000 people, uh, and today there's something like 3,000. There were, I think you said there were yeah. three schools, and now there's 300. Yeah, it goes on. Yeah, Great yeah. statistics, and, and a lot of that is because of the wealth. And De Beers seems to play an outsized, outsized role in uh, just about everything here. Just it feels it's 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 a funder of a lot of things. Is there a risk of being a little too paternalistic here or having too much of a reliance on one company? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, the um, It's certainly not a paternalistic relationship. It, it is, I'm going to invent a word here, but a partnership-istic relationship where um, uh, what is best for both parties is best for the partnership. And uh, there is an understanding that um, what makes diamonds valuable is that they are finite. But let's face it, uh, that also means that one day they will run out. Uh, as I said before, uh, Botswana owns 50% of Debswana, but it also owns 15% of De Beers globally. It's a 15% shareholder. And that means that the people of Botswana are our shareholders. So when we talk about creating shareholder value, we understand that to mean something slightly different than almost any other company uh, in the world. In addition, 
you know, we are a multinational company, and we look for environments in which to invest that are uh, conducive to uh, return on capital. And uh, we think we've got a responsibility to create an environment that has a crop of talent, that has solid infrastructure, um, that has good health care so people can come to work. And so it's not for us to leave that to government to do. We think we have a role to play in that. So clearly De Beers has made Botswana a better country. Has Botswana made De Beers a better company? Yeah, the fir- I'd say first, Botswana has made Botswana a better com- country. And uh, Botswana has had the grace to allow us to participate in that story, but it's Botswana's story. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, Botswana has absolutely made De Beers a better company. And I will tell you, we've got something like 20,000 people around the world. They work in the Arctic Circle. They work uh, 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 off the coast of Namibia. Uh, they work in New York City, and uh, they're on the red carpet at the Oscars. Um, they are all deeply proud of the partnership De Beers has with Botswana and her people and feel that it is a central part of the value system of the company. Well, it's a really interesting story, really interesting relationship. David Prager, Executive Vice President of De Beers, thanks for sharing it. Thanks so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to Center Stage, our new podcast. That's the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Send us email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to get your emails. And thanks to GreenBiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce and GreenBiz managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition, episode 101 of GreenBiz 350. In the meantime, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.